fellow feasters in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience as we prepare for Season 7 of the Gospel Feast podcast. Our author and historian has been busily working on a very special book, Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed. You've heard the story of Esther, but do you really understand it? I think you will find this book illuminates things that you never knew were in the simple story of Esther. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. When we ended our last podcast, we were promised that we would explore the special gifts that God has endowed His daughters in these last days. It is in our day that the prophet of the Lord turned his priesthood keys for women. It happened on the 17th of March, 1842, along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River in the city of Nauvoo. Sooner or later, Latter-day Saints bump into a refreshingly kind comment about Joseph Smith from a famous and unbiased non-Mormon who spent a day with the prophet in Nauvoo. His name was Josiah Quincy, and he was the well-off playboy son of both the Bostonian Quincy and Adams clans. The same family that gave us Sam, John, and Abigail Adams, and not surprisingly, John Quincy Adams. Joseph Smith was an enigma in his day. There had been no true prophets on the earth since the loss of the priesthood sometime around 400 A.D., after the death of Moroni. Joseph's claim that the heavens were open again, combined with various signs of the times, brought many into the restored church, and many more into investigating it pro and con. While Josiah never joined the church, after meeting Joseph Smith personally, he had this to say about him. It is by no means improbable that some future textbook for the use of generations yet unborn will contain a question something like this. What historical American of the 19th century has exerted the most powerful influence upon the destinies of his countrymen? And it is by no means impossible that the answer to that interrogatory may thus be written, Joseph Smith the Mormon prophet. And the reply, absurd as it doubtless seems to most men now living, may be an obvious commonplace to their descendants. History deals in surprises and paradoxes quite as startling as this. The man who established a religion in his age of free debate, who was and is today accepted by hundreds of thousands as a direct emissary from the Most High, such a rare human being is not to be disposed of by pelting his memory with unsavory epithets. On that same future day, in that same future textbook, it will be footnoted that the great outpouring of freedom given to God's daughters worldwide had its igniting spark at Nauvoo by the man holding the keys of power. Here is how it came about. Early in 1842, in the frontier city of Nauvoo, Illinois, some of the Mormon ladies recognized the need for the women of the church to be organized for service. The Lord had commanded several massive construction projects, including a temple and a hotel to be called the Nauvoo House. To improve his personal estate, the Prophet Joseph was planning to build a nicer home for his family to live in, and to store and sell supplies, and give him a private office. In the course of improving the condition of womanhood worldwide, this store, named the Red Brick Store, would be the setting of one of the most significant events in the history of righteous feminism, although most of the world's women would never know it. The prophet was deeply concerned 
that the saints understood the importance of finishing the Nauvoo Temple. Upset that various members of the church had means to expedite its completion, and yet were reluctant to help, the prophet rose to speak one Sunday. He pointed toward the unfinished temple foundation and said, The Lord has commanded us to build that temple. We want to build it, but we have not the means. There are people in the city who have the means, but will not let us have them. What shall we do with such a people? I say, damn them to hell. And then he sat down. The very next day, several persons came forward with their means, thereby averting the prophet's curse. Sarah Kimball, wife of Hiram Kimball, was eager to help as well. She was young, wealthy, and idealistic. Unable to work with the men quarrying the heavy stone for the building, Sarah realized that she too had the means of speeding up the work, but in a feminine way. She had noticed that many of the men in the building crews were wearing clothes that bespoke of their strenuous labor. Some worked in rags. She knew the Lord had taught the saints in our day. Doctrine and Covenants 58.27 Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. Sarah also understood the truth that since all good things come from God, the righteous desire to do something good, which you feel in your heart, can be the calling from God to do that good. She felt the desire to provide better clothing for her church brethren laboring on the temple. She had the means to get the materials, and if she could get some help from the sisters, they could make clothing for the men. Women who could not afford to buy cloth could give their time and sewing skills instead. Everyone could do something so everyone could be of service. She told her plan to several sisters at church. They thought it was an excellent idea, and together they urged Sister Eliza R. Snow to write a set of bylaws to take to the prophet and see if he approved of their idea. Eliza wrote them up according to the agreement the sisters had outlined together. When Joseph read them, he was very pleased by it all, but then said that the Lord had something far greater in store for the women of the world and for the sisters of his church. He asked that they meet with him in a large room above his red brick store to discuss it. On the 17th of March, 1842, a group of 18 church sisters gathered for the meeting, including the prophet's wife, Emma Smith, with sisters Sarah M. Cleveland, Elizabeth Whitney, Sarah Kimball, Bathsheba Smith, Desdemona Fulmer, and Eliza R. Snow. They listened excitedly as the prophet outlined the Lord's plan. Women, he explained, were naturally disposed to compassionate acts, and they readily saw the needs of people, and were quick to extend comfort and assistance. The Lord desired that the women of Zion be organized for the purpose of giving them strength as sisters, to express their benevolent natures, and assist the male priesthood in looking after the needs of the poor, the sick, and the lonely. He proposed that they organize themselves after the order of the male priesthood, with a president and counselors. He recommended they elect their first president by vote, and that the president should choose her counselors and a secretary. As the Society of Sisters grew, they would do so in an organized way like the men do. Just as men are called to duties as deacons, teachers, and priests, being called and set apart in an orderly way, so the women would organize their society under similar principles of order. Then Joseph Smith, John Taylor, and Willard Richards, the men who were present, withdrew to let the women make their own selections. After the women voted, the men returned, and the prophet officially approved their choice of Emma Smith as their first president. From the minutes of that first meeting, recorded by Willard Richards, 
We read that with a smile, the prophet turned to Doctrine and Covenants 25. Hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, while I speak unto you. Emma Smith, my daughter, for verily I say unto you, all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. A revelation I give unto you concerning my will. And if thou art faithful, and walk in the paths of virtue before me, I will preserve thy life, and thou shalt receive an inheritance in Zion. Behold, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou art an elect lady, whom I have called. The prophet explained that the sisters had chosen whom the Lord had already ordained twelve years earlier in July of 1830, when the revelation was given. He said that there would be many elect ladies in Zion, sisters called upon, or elected, to do the good work of love and compassion throughout the world. He said that Emma was to expound upon the scriptures, teach the women of the community in many skills and knowledge, and lead the way for other women to do so as well. Then he read the second epistle of John, first verse. The elder, unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. It was a kind of nod to Emma that the prophet loved her and their children, and that as she embraced this new calling, it would be the source of her good works. Millions would benefit from what she was beginning. All who love truth would love her, and all like her would be loved as well. The priesthood holders present then set Emma's counselors apart by the laying on of hands. God's kingdom is a kingdom of order. Emma was also given a blessing, reconfirming all of this along with the beautiful pronouncement that she might be a mother in Israel, and look to the wants of the needy, and be a pattern of virtue, and possess all the qualifications necessary for her to stand and preside, and dignify her office, to teach the females those principles requisite for their future usefulness. This is a beautiful way of saying that Emma would be a model of the fulfillment of female creation upon the earth. If you've been following our Gospel Feast series, you'll remember that the Lord said that one gains celestialization by fulfilling the measure of why they were made. There is no greater gift born of duty. The prophet then gave them a short lecture on parliamentary procedure, which was all the officious rage in the 1800s. It was then that the men suggested a name for this first woman society. They liked the Nauvoo Female Benevolent Society. But the sisters preferred, ultimately, the Relief Society. It is marvelous to me that the first debate this historic and divinely inspired society had was between men and women in the room choosing a name. It is marvelous proof of how seriously the sisters took their new charge. God had given them a society with the right to make some internal decisions, and so they were going to do just that. The prophet did mention that benevolent was a popular term, well understood by the public. Relief carried the additional burden of sometimes meaning liberation of a culprit. This might be used and abused by the enemies of the church to say that the society was founded to relieve criminals from punishment or to let a murderer go free. This would not be a benevolent act. President Emma Smith said she didn't care what the people thought. The women were going to give relief and would do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Eliza R. Snow asked to speak and said she agreed with Emma. The word benevolent was used by worldly organizations that were corrupt to the core. 
she declared the popular institutions of the day should not be our guide. They were daughters of Zion, and they would be a new example to all the world. Emma said, We are going to do something extraordinary. When a boat is stuck on the rapids, with a multitude of Mormons on board, we shall consider that a loud call for relief. We do expect extraordinary occasions and pressing calls. The men, including the prophet, conceded the point, with the pledge, All I shall have to give to the poor, I shall give to this society from now on. It was the prophet's charity of choice. In the end, they chose the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo. In time, it would be called the Relief Society, with the official motto, Charity Never Faileth. Its theme would be organized nurturing, compassionate service, and betterment of the human family. The prophet made it clear that until the women were thus organized, the church was never completely whole. As president, Emma chose two counselors. The prophet Joseph then declared that he was turning the key in behalf of women in the name of the Lord, as was his right, and that knowledge and intelligence would flow down on them from that time forevermore. Little could the women of the world appreciate that societies and organizations like these would eventually grow in perfection to make the sisters of the kingdom, priestesses, or today we would say temple matriarchs, organized and capable of blessing other sisters, as did Anna of old when inside the temples of the Lord. Elder John Taylor blessed each of them. When he came to Emma, he laid his hands on the head of Mrs. Smith and blessed her, that she might be a mother in Israel and look to the wants of the needy and be a pattern of virtue and possess all the qualifications necessary for her to stand, preside, and dignify her office to teach the women these principles required for their future usefulness. Emma took her commission seriously, so seriously, in fact, that the prophet later had to caution the sisters not to be overzealous in forcefully improving people, but to strive to lift others with kindness and patience. He taught them that just as men had to learn to exercise their priesthood without compulsion on others, so must the sisters improve the world while still allowing all to choose for themselves the path of right or wrong. An overzealous woman could be dangerous when she exercised her calling unrighteously. Emma's lessons to the Relief Society reflect her magnificent command of language and clear understanding of eternal principles of righteousness. Secretary Eliza R. Snow recorded the minutes for each meeting. From these minutes, we learn that Emma focused her ministry on a threefold theme, unity, purity, and charity, in keeping with the Relief Society's motto, Charity Never Faileth. In the context of 1842, Emma's messages stood out pointedly as a warning to the sisters of Nauvoo of current dangers Emma saw manifesting themselves in the community and in their homes. Yet the same statements could be presented in any congregation in our modern world with equal application. Over 150 years ago, she taught the sisters that regarding unity, women needed to stick together and not tattle on one another in petty gossip as unrefined and worldly women do. She urged them to keep a prudent outlook, and when they were privy to private things, to keep them to themselves. She taught them that any problems between members should be kept to themselves and not broadcast to the world at large. Good things, however, she said, should be shared openly, but the tongue she taught can be an unruly member and ought to be controlled. When speaking on purity, Emma urged caution so as to avoid even the appearance of evil 
she admonished the women to be watchful of all their actions and deeds, and see to it that they did nothing to bring reproach upon themselves or the society. She taught that by being virtuous they would obtain the blessings of the Lord and have His Spirit to be their constant companion. She invited the sisters to throw a cloak of charity over faults that might be apparent. Instead of criticizing, forgive. She instructed the sisters in their duties to serve the poor and needy, to extend comfort to widows and orphans. In short, she urged them, like the Savior once did, to love and serve one another. These admonitions are as timely now as they were then. Emma received official and public recognition as First Lady in the Church and First Lady among women, elected and chosen as an example of virtue, called to preside, not for self-gratification, but to set an example that others may attain the same blessing. The Prophet encouraged the sisters to use their talents and to seek out the gifts of the Spirit and to use them to bless all mankind. The gifts of the Spirit are often confused with the powers of the priesthood. And while some overlap in terms of outward consequences, their function and organization is fundamentally different, although sometimes they can accomplish the same things. We will discuss these gifts in detail, but in brief, the crossovers are the gift of testimony, faith, knowledge, wisdom, administration, healing, tongues, discernment, diversity of operations, teaching, prophecy, and revelation. You should know that all good talents are also gifts of the Spirit. Kindness, music, athleticism, any good thing that blesses you, the membership of the Church and the world at large, comes from our God, who is good. Through virtue, Emma did set an example in word and deed for others. Her house was never empty, as widows and orphans, the hungry, the sick, the lame, and the weary from all walks of life found rest there. Emma nursed the sick comforted the lonely, and even in her own poverty divided her meager resources with those who were in need. It was not all grim duty. There were socials and theater performances with some of Nabu's citizens taking leading roles in dramatic presentations, such as the play Damon and Pythias. It was fun at times, too. Her family enjoyed singing together, praying, and playing together. They frequently rode out into the country to visit their friends or to work on the farm. Emma carried her calling as First Lady of the Church with dignity. Years later, a friend would remember, Sister Emma was benevolent and hospitable. She drew around her a large circle of friends who were like good comrades. She was motherly in her nature to young people and always had a houseful to entertain or be entertained. In terms of Christian thinking, it was a unique oddity in our doctrine that when it came to making congregational decisions binding on the body, everyone got a vote. By everyone, we mean everyone. Women and even children old enough to understand, or at least mimic the adults around them, have the right to sustain or object to decisions pertaining to the body of Christ. This type of fairness was a natural outgrowth of the core of restored Christian philosophy. We are all children of God. The gender you were born with, you will raise with in the resurrection. Note carefully. Secular Christianity has no understanding of what a woman does in heaven. Ask them to name for you one heavenly woman. Catholics will say Mary. Okay, that's good, she is there. But what is she doing there? They have no answers. For Latter-day Saints, women are the queens of heaven. They function as almighty goddesses in the full and expressed joy of their creation. There is much we don't understand fully. 
But we do know that at our spiritual birth, each of us chose, with eyes open, whether we wanted to follow the path of our Heavenly Mother or our Heavenly Father. The fact that so many chose to follow our Mother in Heaven's path should stand as a witness that she was someone very special indeed. In restored Christianity, we cherish the plan of salvation as our core belief. Here we are taught that an almighty male and an almighty female came together in love to form an eternal family. We know that our heavenly parents cherish both their sons and daughters. Mormon men realize that the same protective love that they have for their own daughters is the same love that the father has for his daughters. God, the judge of us all, has a tender spot for his daughters. Good men husband their families. In Mormondom, women have always had a say, a vote, so to speak, in public and family affairs. Utah was the first territory to offer women the vote. When Utah petitioned for statehood, the federal government insisted that right be removed, as well as the unbelievably unconstitutional demand that Latter-day Saints cease their free right to religion by ending polygamy. Utah complied, and years later the Mormons and women of Wyoming took up the cause. Wyoming became the first official state to give women the vote. Modern women today do not appreciate how all of this is a direct result of Joseph Smith turning the keys of priesthood for women. It is a miracle how the simple, charitable desire of Sister Sarah Kimball changed the world forever, and that a prophet hated and martyred had been the spark that started it all. The freedom for womanhood on the earth has never been greater but with the gifts of heaven come Satan's twists of darkness. Many women today, despite their covenants before God and angels, either don't understand or refuse to believe that they will be accountable for maintaining the order of heaven, particularly during the day of their probation. So what is the order of heaven? Let's discuss it. We have effectively so bastardized masculinity today, both in its hyper-aggressiveness or by its castration. Men are either bad boy rebels or pansies. Most women don't like it, and the men are just confused. I have been to church services where men have been taught, make no decisions without your wife. Okay, how does that work? The poor young groom asks. The answer is, counsel her on all family matters. Okay, that's a clearer answer. Making no decisions and counseling together are not the same answer. If a man is to lead out, he sometimes has to make a decision. Women possess a deep wisdom by nature, and often can't internalize a problem in a way that gives a decision clarity. But if the two cannot come to an agreement, who gets the final say? The answer is simple. The Lord does. And this is how it works. It is called the order of heaven. Husbands and wives should counsel together on issues pertaining to their union and family with due weight being given to the man's stewardship to provide and the woman's stewardship to nurture. Most issues of job and money would be considered with a favoritism towards the father. He knows he may not be able to manage an additional load, or long drive or schedule, but these things should be discussed. Most issues of young children and nurturing matters should give weight to the mother's wisdom. Sometimes a particular punishment or reward might not be as wise as another, and often the mother has a good sense of this. Of course, there are always exceptions, and thus the counseling together gives balance and unity. If a husband and wife cannot come to an agreement, they should bring the matter to the Lord as the third partner in their marriage. 
For serious disagreements, fasting and temple attendance might be needed along with prayer. Often the Lord will whisper His will to the couple together, and then the choice becomes easy no matter who it appears to favor. This is not a game with mature couples. Young couples are not always so mature. Every striving couple wants to follow the Lord, and there is no shame in heeding His answer, whatever it may be or whoever it favors. Now, and here's the hard part. If after all these options have failed, it is incumbent on the husband to petition the Lord for the answer. When this is given, and presented to the wife, and sometimes to the whole family as well, as being the Lord's will, she has made a covenant with God and her husband to follow it. There is no my way or your way when this is done in humility. It is the Lord's way, and so it is okay. I have witnessed examples where after such petitions that a husband has returned to his wife and admitted in love that the Lord told him, heed your wife's counsel in this thing. She is right. The most famous instance of this in Scripture is Father Abraham being told by the Lord to do as his wife Sarah counseled him. Abraham did not want to do it Sarah's way, but he did it because now it was the Lord's way too. Likewise, I have seen a righteous wife back down from her stance, and with some pride say that even though she might have done something differently, she would take great comfort in the truth that her husband was righteous enough to seek and hear the word of the Lord on a family matter. I have personally witnessed many hardships when couples chose not to follow the order of heaven in an agreement between them. For the men of the church, one of the greatest confusions comes from the misreading of Doctrine and Covenants 121.39. We have learned by sad experience that is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. There are many men who, up against the flare of feminism's fire, have been told that any decision they make in leadership of their family is exercising unrighteous dominion. I don't believe I can count the number of lessons I have had on this in a quorum by ignorant instructors. Whenever anyone pushed the topic for clarification, I have discovered that both the lecturer and the listeners are equally confused. Many men find it easier just to let their wives lead out, pay the bills, and make hard choices than there is no unrighteous dominion, they reason. In an early marriage, this sometimes works. But Relief Society is filled with older sisters who wish their husbands were better at leading out in the home. Many times I have heard, I wish my husband would be the one to call the family together for nightly prayer or be in charge of our family gatherings. I believe this later problem and the former problem are the same problem. Since we have a scriptural term, unrighteous dominion, it is assumed by too many frightened young husbands, and by far too many self-entitled young wives, that all dominion is unrighteous dominion. Righteous dominion is approved of the Lord. So what constitutes unrighteous dominion? Luckily, the answer is found in the same scripture itself. Pay careful note to these verses. Doctrine and Covenants 121.41 no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. God does not want his priesthood used as the force of one's dominion. Why? Because this life is about choice and agency, and is a time for men and women to learn to judge good over evil, choose right over wrong, and repent with sincerity when they discover a needed change. That is everyone's test here on earth. Can the priesthood be used contrary to these principles? 
Absolutely. But by God, not by man. God has used his priesthood power to place enmity between intelligent beings, to change kings into mental beasts of the field, to slay thousands of Assyrians and the firstborn of Egypt. God has said that his power is total, and I believe him. But God has also said that vengeance is mine, and the offense is mine, and I will repay. Ours is a day when men speaking in the name of God are to do so on his terms, with persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Even sharpness and seriousness is okay as needed, as long as afterwards the outpouring of love given is equal to the sharpness, so that those you were forced to reprove understand that while the words may have been sharp, they were given in love. Man's use of the priesthood is not to make enemies, it is to serve. So what does a man do when he has put his foot down, so to speak? Is that unrighteous dominion? Well, it depends. Is his manly determination born of Joshua twenty-four fifteen? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You will note that Joshua threw down the gauntlet. These are pretty strong words. Joshua had put his foot down. Yet you will note that while Joshua made his stand, he did not command others in the name of God by the priesthood to obey him. Instead, he offered them a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the secret to righteous dominion. Joshua took a stand and clearly stated the cause of truth, but never did he try to cover up his sins, to gratify his pride or ambition, never did he attempt to exercise control over anyone. They were free to choose for themselves, but he had made his choice. Anyone not willing to follow him, as he followed the Lord, was free to depart and go their own way. This included his wife and kids. Joshua was turning right in the fork of the road. He invited all to follow him. Those who turned left he wept over and said goodbye to. That is not unrighteous. The scriptures record 38 times when a wife caused her husband to sin by choosing her lead over the Lord's. Father Lehi was severely reprimanded for trusting his wife over the Lord. In Nauvoo, after a period of terrible trial, Joseph Smith finally went to the Lord for an answer as to the difficulties he was having, and the Lord finally said to him, Stop listening to Emma, listen to me. We are all on a path of growth, and fortunately we all get more than one chance to learn a lesson. A further mistake of modernity is an easy trap to fall into. Somehow we have come to believe that an offense against one is an offense against all. Thus, any harsh word against our Mother Eve or Emma Smith, for example, is an offense against all women. This would be true if a person could be punished for another's sins. But since we hold the second article of faith to be true, you would think that we know better. But many of us don't. I have known a handful of sisters in the church who, if they cannot command their husbands, refuse to play in the sandbox. An example of how a little authority can lead to unrighteous dominion, male or female, is preserved in the Nauvoo Relief Society notes of 1842. No sooner had the prophet instructed the women of the church on their ability to faith heal when one of the sisters, so healed by another sister's faith, testified that she thought the sisters had more faith than the brethren. Women were thus better healers. So perhaps by what should have been an outpouring of gratitude for the healing, quickly turned into a competition among the sexes.
Satan is a tricky one. In a former feast, we discussed the very many goddess-based religions which the Lord had to contend with in Moses' day. I am convinced that one of the reasons the Father has withheld more information about celestial femininity from us is due to these reasons and attitudes. Like the arrogant quote above, here is another one. Augusta Cobb Young, third wife of Brigham Young, wrote a letter in April 1848 to him, ordering him to marry her to Joseph Smith posthumously. She commanded him, the prophet of God, by the power of the holy priesthood vested in her, I order you to seal me to Joseph Smith, she said. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? Brigham granted her demand, but a later journal entry, revealed by the family, shows how hard it was on poor Brigham, being a rooster pecked half to death by a coop of bossy hens. This is unrighteous, feminine dominion. The best women in the world help their husbands and strengthen them in their callings. They work together. Far too many women expect their men to be perfect in their fallen state, and miss the hypocrisy that their harsh, unforgiving judgments are in and of themselves proof of their own lack of perfection. Men struggle. Women struggle. Godly spouses forgive each other. I believe that many in the church do not really understand the gifts of the Spirit and how they were given to bless all of God's children. These gifts are freely given to both men and women. And since Joseph Smith turned the keys even more so, those of us who have been touched by these gifts and seen their power are richly blessed. These are experiences never to be forgotten. There is safety in using these gifts if one remembers that God has placed within the keys of every local bishop the right to judge if a gift is real and is being used correctly, or if it is false and not of God. Those humble enough to remember this truth should have no fear in enjoying and sharing with others the gifts of the Spirit given to them for sharing. Ah, the gifts of the Spirit. Now, that is something I know that I want to learn more about. The Lord has promised that every child of God has at least one gift, and some have more than one. Reading in the scriptures, I can recall the names of some of these gifts, but I admit that their names don't really help me understand their purpose, so our next episode will not be one to miss. Until next time, may the Spirit of our Lord and our kinsman Redeemer, Jesus Christ, be with all of us. Thank you.